Hi, everyone. Welcome to Fire the Canon, the podcast where we read the books in the Western canon and decide if they belong or if they don't belong. Here are your hosts, Rachel and Jackie. But the people need to hear your voices. Hello. That's Jackie. Hello. That's Rachel. And that's all they say. (laughs) Now you can tell us apart easily. Mm -hmm. And I'm Theo, the executive producer. Whoa. (laughs) I wish I had said hello a little weirder now so that Rachel would have also had to say it weird. (laughs) He just gave himself a promotion. We're going to just elide that. (laughs) I ignored it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the producer's allowed to give people promotions. Mostly himself, though. Yeah. Huh. All right, then. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome. We Don't expect are doing... me to have any more duties now that I'm executive <laughs> producer, please. Yeah, there's no one who's the assistant producer either. Um, well, today, what are we talking about? We are doing something in honor of St. Patrick's Day, which Rachel wanted me to make sure that I say is not a big deal in Ireland and is really only a thing in America. But we're in America, and it's uh, about that time of year. So we wanted to talk about something Irish. Are either of you guys at all... Irish. Yes. Yeah. All right. My dad's dad's mother's maiden name was Reagan. Oh. Whoa. Just like that horrible guy who didn't help people with AIDS. It was that horrible guy. That was him, yeah. Oh, her dad's mother, Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Ronaldo. Yeah, and my family has a lot of Irish in them, too. Really? I thought they were Scottish. Well, they're most proud of their Scottish heritage. <laughs> we're Irish and ashamed. <laughs> but it's like the smallest percentage. It's like mostly English, then Irish, then a little bit Scottish. And it's like, yeah, yeah I'm a cloud clan. I'm going to get the coat of arms tattooed on my on my body. What? People Who's done that? People in my family. Frank. No. Frank. Seth. So if they were to ask, what is your, your ethnicity, your heritage? You would have said, mostly ashamed, partly mm-hmm. Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I've got some Irish heritage as well, but let's move know. along because I know Irish people think it's so stupid when Americans talk about it. But like, pff, come on, what else are we going to talk about? Nothing. <laughs> Should we just add O apostrophe to the beginning of everything we say? Oh, yeah. Oh, fire the cannon. Oh, fire the cannon. <laughs> I'm your host, O Jackie. <laughs> I'm your host, O. Jackie. So... If someone were to hear that we are covering something by an Irish writer, they would guess correctly who we're talking about today. And that person is James Joyce. I knew it. You knew it? I hope so. However, <laughs> it's not the <laughs> it's not the usual James Joyce literature you would pick. Is that what you're going to say? Exactly. Yeah. 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 So James Joyce... He is very, very famously Irish. Like, that is a huge part of his literary identity. It's all about Irish stuff. And he was born in 1882. He died in 1941. He was born in Dublin, and that really affected his work, like, a lot. (laughs) Uh And uh, we are not going to be covering Ulysses. We're not going to be covering Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. We are talking today about the first eight stories in Dubliners, which was his first published book. And I didn't know this until I started looking into it, but Dubliners is a collection of short stories. There's 15 total. So like Rachel said, we're going to look at the first eight today. And I'm just going to be giving like very brief summaries about them. And then we'll kind of talk a little bit more about what they mean and then probably make jokes at some point, I hope. Nice. We'll see. So the thing about Dubliners is that the reason he wrote it is he had a friend who worked for a newspaper who was like, hey, do you think you could write something like 
kind of Irishy, like a homey Irish feel. And he said, no problem, dude. That's my whole thing. That's what I'm all about. So he wrote the story, The Sisters, which is the first story in the collection. And he published that in 1904. And then he wrote a couple more stories for the same paper, which was called The Irish Homestead. And nobody liked the stories like they were ridiculously unpopular well they're weird everybody and hated sad. them <laughs> yeah his friend was like can you write something that's going to be really popular go over well he's like of course can you write something uh, that people will like <laughs> and then this is what he wrote whereas before that he was like i don't know if i should write something people will like or something they'll hate i'm gonna stick with something they hate mm. and then if i get a request to write something popular then i'll do it so his stories everyone hated them and he thought to him himself, hey, I'm going to write 12 more and <laughs> get them published together <laughs> in a collection. I'll win them over. Yeah. Let me just do, they just need to read a dozen more of these things they hate and then they'll be into them. If you have haters, that means you're doing something right. He ends up writing these 15. He kind of played around with writing a couple more. And some of the characters in this collection show up in Ulysses later. Mm. But we're not going to concern ourselves with that right now. That's going to be a nightmare that we face further down the road. <laughs> anyway, this took a really long time to get published. And he was rejected. He was rejected by like 15 different publishers. He just was rejected for like 10 years before finally it was published and it barely sold and people didn't really like it. There were a few critics who were like, oh yeah, this guy's clearly got promise, but for the most part, nobody was really into the collection. If they read it at all, they probably just didn't like it very much. And he thought, okay, this is great. Let me keep doing this, but even weirder. <laughs> You think the publishing houses talked to each other and they were like, hey, watch out. I bet this Joyce kid is going to try to send you his weird shit. Like, just reject it. Don't even bother with it. Yeah, don't even bother. JJ is kind of renowned among town for just being way too weird. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. But so anyway, that's that's the story. He actually wasn't very popular in Ireland, I believe, until the 80s or so. So anyway, he, he wrote it when he was 25. And did either of you guys read any of these stories in high school? Because no. I know that I read Araby in one of my English classes. No, I'd never read a single line of Joyce until I see this is the thing. This is why I'm so dumb, because I decided to do this. I was like, let's do Joyce. Let's do something for St. Patrick's Day. Rachel was like, OK. And I was like, well, we can't do Ulysses. Like, I knew that much. And then I was like, well, there's this other thing called Dubliners, and it's just a bunch of short stories. We can do that. And she was like, all right. So I started looking into it. I think you had read this during a Joyce class in college, right? The whole thing. Um, I I never took a Joyce class. Are you thinking of someone else? Oh, I thought you did. No, no, no. Maybe. I didn't. Um, Jackie has another podcast that she does with someone and she's getting it mixed up. Yeah, with someone who took a class on James Joyce. Yeah. I might be thinking of a different podcaster, like not one that I know, just I li anyway. Oh, really? um, and you were like, oh, that was my friend Rachel. Total stranger. <laughs> I was like, that's my friend Rachel. Yeah. Another woman who talks on a podcast. Mark Marin. But anyway, I was like, oh, well, this is a book full of short stories. So that'll be easier to break up and, and do rather than Ulysses or Portrait of an Artist or something. And so I'm starting to read these and I was reading them like on the plane on my way to Singapore and I had internet on the plane. So I was like kind of chatting with Rachel sometimes and was like, Rachel, these are all extremely sad. And she was like, I know. And I was like, why didn't you warn me? 
we can't make this funny. <laughs> I think we can. It's that Dublin vibe. It's that Dublin vibe. I think we can make it funny. I mean, why did I think stories about Dublin in the 1800s would be happy? I don't know. I mean, I didn't think they'd be happy, but they're really weird and sad, but they, they kind of interlock in a lot of different ways. Like they have similar themes overall that they're getting at, which we'll talk about some of them. And then they also have characters that tangentially interact sort of. Like they don't really talk to each other necessarily, but there's things that are kind of interwoven about the stories. Hmm. Also, so James Joyce is very famous for having his characters reach an epiphany at the end. But they're like weird epiphanies and the stories don't really have good endings. <laughs> I just found a carrot in my pocket. <laughs> this changes everything. We'll talk about those epiphanies as we go on. But like when I told Jackie, oh, we could do Dubliners, it's short stories. She was like, well, what if we just do like a couple? Which I was like, you can't do that. <laughs> really? You've got to read all, like they're meant to be together like Mm. it's supposed to be you know a portrait of middle class life in dublin at this time period and the stories are arranged in a particular order so the protagonists like it's children then like younger adults then more mature people and like it goes on yeah and here's another weird thing is that i was thinking we could just pick some short stories no big deal wrong yeah and then i also was like well let's just do seven of the 15 we can cover the other eight later and she was like jackie the last seven or eight are twice the length of the other ones. Yeah. Oh, so here I am reading, reading, reading seven stories in a row. Like, yeah, this is pretty easy. Yep. These are wow, pretty halfway short. Done. And then, little do I know. <laughs> yeah. Cause I'm on an ebook. I don't know how many pages I have left. I wasn't really checking in. I'm like, why would I assume that the last half of the stories are going to be twice as long as the first half? James Joyce just keeps tricking me, man. Here's the thing. There's no reason for you to assume that it would be longer, but also there's no Unreason. reason to assume that you have any idea what the length of a book is. <laughs> well, but why would the last, like, why would all the first seven stories be one length and all the last eight stories be a different length? Like, that just seems. Well, the it. first ones are about short events in the lives of children. And then as you get older, you have more stuff that occurs in your life. Find more carrots in your pocket. Not me. Way more shit happened to me as a kid. But it still has happened to the you now, and you're adding things on top. I know, I know, I know. Same person, sorry. Does the book also go in order of, like, seasons, kind of? Because he talks a lot about it being, like, spring, then summer, now now I'm noticing it being fall. Does it do that? We'll Hmm. have to keep going and find out. But I am going to tell you, before we start, the stories we're going to cover are The Sisters, An Encounter, Araby, Eveline, After the Race, Two Gallants, The Boarding House, and A Little Cloud. A Little Cloud. Wow. You're going to love A Little Cloud, Thea. There's a particular reason. Don't tell him yet till we get there. I won't tell him. We're going to try to do this a little bit differently than a lot of the other times that we've done this podcast, which we're going to try to do pretty short summaries of each story because... With Joyce, a lot of the value is how he uses language and the mood that he builds up. So there are actually not that many plot events that occur in most of these. It's a lot of like Mm -hmm. people thinking about stuff. Hmm. And then like a symbol comes in and you think about what that symbol means. It's not really about what happens in the plot so much. Right. So we're going to just kind of breeze through pretty quickly. (laughs) Easy breezy, beautiful Darcy, as we say. As we always say. Okay, guys. So we're going to talk about the first story, which is called The Sisters. 
And there's an unnamed narrator. We know he's a young boy. And the whole story is just about the boy was sort of friends with a priest named Father Flynn, who at the start of the story we learn has died. That's basically it. He used to bring snuff to this priest who was pretty sickly, and the priest would kind of teach him some different things, like more intellectual stuff. And the boy kind of has an, uh, a disagreement with his uncle, who is maybe not particularly intellectual. And by the end of the story, the boy and his aunt are visiting and like talking to the dead priest's sisters. And that's what happens. <laughs> Yeah, that was not how I would have explained it. How would you explain it? This is fun. Like Rachel said, there's a, a young male narrator, um, and he had been kind of like a mentor or like a 2T of this guy, Father a Flynn, mentee. who was a priest, and he was... He was minty fresh, go on. He's minty <laughs> fresh, yes. And his uncle and aunt and a neighbor are kind of talking about how they don't think that this was a healthy relationship that this young boy had with mm. the priest. They don't really say why. They kind of dance around the issue. They're thinking, like, it would have maybe been healthier for him not to have spent time with Father Flynn. We learn that... Father Flynn died after a series of strokes, which left him like increasingly paralyzed. And you have the narrator just kind of like continually thinking the word paralysis, paralysis. He remembers like a dream that he had about Father Flynn. He can't remember how it ended. He remembers like it was kind of strange and involved the priest's face and it was a little weird and scary. It ends with them going to the house to view the body and thinking about what Father Flynn had done in his life, and it's revealed that towards the end of his life, he had gone insane. And then the boy doesn't necessarily have many thoughts or say anything about it. It's You kind of get the sense that he's a little paralyzed himself. The funny thing that happens in the story is that when they go to the house for the, like, viewing or whatever, mm -hmm. the older sisters of the dead priest offer him cream crackers and the boy says like I didn't eat them because I was worried that it was going to make too much noise like everyone was so quiet I didn't want to be crunching on crackers huh. I also saw something that said he feared it would be so loud it might disturb the priest in his coffin or like wake him up or something he's a really loud eater oh. but yeah. anyway so the story when I was reading it I was like is this going to go the typical like oh you know priest Catholic is molesty, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. No, it seems like there are kind of two reasons that people are against this, like the relationship. And one is the uncle, like I said, doesn't really seem to care that much about like intellectual pursuits. Mm -hmm. And they're just like, no, kids should be playing outside. They shouldn't be learning things and like getting aspirations that are maybe above their station in life. But also I did a little background research and it seems likely that Joyce was trying to indicate that Father Flynn had syphilis, mm -hmm. which would explain why the adults in the town kind of don't like him. Like, they wouldn't stop him from hanging out with a child, but he has, like, a sexually transmitted disease because he broke his priesthood vows or whatever. Yeah. That and James Joyce, based on his own life experiences and so on, not having syphilis, but, like, being around it and studying, he would have been very familiar with the effects. So it, it would have been an intentional thing that he put in there. And we talked in a previous episode about how tertiary syphilis, the end stages, causes people to, to go insane, basically. And it says in the story that his decline sort of began when he dropped a chalice 
Jesus in the church. Like, even though it wasn't that big of a deal, it was kind of him, I guess, symbolizing maybe dropping religion or, like, religion being part of the cause for his decline. It's a very vague story, you know, because the boy, at one point, he thinks, like, he's wondering, like, why do I not feel more sad about this? Because by all accounts, the relationship would have been beneficial to me. Like, I learned a lot, blah, blah, blah. But for some reason, I kind of feel relieved that he's... So... It's just a bunch of complex feelings for a small boy to have. Mm -hmm. So that's that story. You also get the dream that he had, um, in addition to being kind of about the priest's face and his paralysis, um, there's like this image of what he calls a Persian room. So like a room that's kind of decorated, sort of like Middle Eastern. And that's what he remembers. Mm. And that motif also kind of comes back through the stories. Hmm. Yeah, there's some uh, interesting, let's call it turn of the century orientalism in a lot of this. (laughs) Oh yeah, a lot of it. I was Um, kind of looking online to see on Twitter if anyone had talked about it and someone uh, talking about Dubliners, someone was like, I just started reading Dubliners. Sucks about the old guy who died. (laughs) And that's their review (laughs) of the first story. (laughs) I think they read like, what, two sentences into the first story? They may not have continued at all. Well, I still think it sucks. He seems like a nice old man. What I was reading was painting him as a malevolent figure, so maybe we read different things. Uh, Yeah, I don't think there's any reason to think that. It seems to me it was much more that society was prejudiced against him for potentially breaking his priestly vows. You could read it that way as well. I do. I do. And a lot of other people do. I think you could also read it as he was a molester. How? I mean, how? Yeah, he... what's your proof in the text? There's no proof. Okay. <laughs> it's a very vague story, but you could read it as the way that you're reading it, or you could read it the other way. Like, there's some reason that people don't approve of his relationship with this guy. The boy himself is uncomfortable about it, but he seems like he's blocked out some memories. He's not sure why he's uncomfortable. He has a dream about it, but he can't remember how the dream ends. To me, these things are suggesting, like, there's something in his psyche that he's, like, not addressing about his relationship with this guy. And it could be many things. Okay. To me personally, there's not really proof in the text that the thing people don't like about him is, like, molesting children, especially because nobody ever tries to stop him from hanging out with a boy. And also, I think two, like, molestation stories in a row is kind of a lot. So that's my, like, extra textual evidence as well. I'm seeing the two themes going together. And I think, yeah, in a lot of situations, like, even if he kind of had a reputation of, like, being kind of pervy with younger kids, like, no one's going to say, well, you can't hang out with a priest. Like, I think that would have been kind of socially not okay in super Catholic Ireland. Um, So I don't know. I think it's possible. But all right. So let's move on. The second one is called An Encounter. Yes. This is also told from the perspective of an unnamed schoolboy. And there's only three of the 15 stories that are told in the first person. So here the first two are told in the first person. So this boy makes a plan to skip school with his friend. And they decide they're going to go across the the country lands and visit what they call the Pigeon House. And the Pigeon House is like the electrical power grid for Dublin. So they like make this big day of it. They're like, we're going to get rid of the monotony of school for the day and just kind of go have fun. So they have this adventure and they're happy at first and it's a nice summer day and they're walking and walking. At one point, um, they run into some boys who start making insults at them because I guess the one boy is um, like dark haired or something and they think he might be a Protestant. So they're yelling at them because a good Catholic school boy would be in school right now, not wandering around the streets. Well, who, the kids who are yelling, they're doing that too. So they're walking and then they decide to like take a rest in a field for a while. At this point, an old man, like a middle-aged to older man comes up to them and starts talking. And this guy's kind of weird, kind of creepy. He's very repetitive. Like, he keeps saying the same things. He starts out kind of weird, and by the end, he's 
very, very, very it gets weird. It's really weird. Ain't that how it always goes, though? Well, ain't that just the way? People don't show they're weird in the first thing they say. <laughs> I don't know if this is how it always goes. That's how it sometimes goes. <laughs> yeah. So, like, they're skipping school. They're trying to have a fun day as, like, little kids. But this guy comes up to them. And at first, he's, like, kind of talking to them about books. Like, what books do you like? Then he says, do you have a lot of sweethearts? And he's like, oh, I bet a boy like you has a lot of sweethearts. Oh, before the sweetheart part, when he's talking about, like, have you read this? Have you read this? The narrator's like, I hadn't read any of the books, basically, but I just said yes to everything. He felt like he needed to impress him. So he would ask me if I've read whatever, and I was like, yeah, I've read it. Oh, gosh. So <laughs> the guy's like, wow, you're a bookworm. <laughs> it's a dangerous game. What if the guy's like, oh, then what happens in it? <laughs> yeah, right? And Well, he's kind of like shitting on the other boy, so he's like, ah, a smart boy like you would know these books, but not that dummy over there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm thinking of it perverted. I'm thinking like he He's grooming this boy, basically, Mm. on a very short time scale because, right, it's one conversation. But then he's like, oh, I bet you have a lot of sweethearts. Like, how many girls do you have? And blah, blah, blah. And then so he wanders away for a while. And he, the boy talks to his friend and is like, I don't feel great about that guy. If he comes back, let's go by fake names. When he leaves, he's within eyesight. And the boy's friend is like, ooh, look at what he's doing. He's doing something so weird. And the boy, like, refu- the narrator refuses to look at him. And the friend's like, oh, my God, look at him. Look at what he's up to. Like, he's masturbating. He's, like, masturbating right over there. <laughs> and then he comes back right afterwards and starts talking to the boy again. So he comes back after this, and now his demeanor has changed a lot. And now he's talking about how if you had any sweethearts, you should be whipped. Like, I love, you know, little girls, and I love, like, how soft they are and stuff. But little boys who deal with little girls, they should be whipped. And I would really like to be the ones to whip them. Like, I just love whipping and whipping. And so he's, like, just saying this same kind of stuff over and over. He's like, it's the best thing I could imagine is, like, beating a little boy who has a sweetheart and lies to me about it. That would be the best thing in the world. Wow. It's like hypnotic. It's almost like he's in a trance. He can't stop saying these things. So he calls to his friend using his fake name. The boy runs across the field to him. Story ends. The ending is even kind of weird because when Mahani shows up, the narrator's like, he expresses kind of having negative thoughts about his friend. And then that's it. That's that one. Well, so the third story is called Araby. And this is the one that I read in high school, totally excised from the collection. Mm -hmm. And I really think that they all need to be read together. I think that they suffer when you read them individually, which is kind of surprising since he wrote them as standalones at first. But so Araby, this one is like very easy to do a quick summary. It is a boy who is in love with his friend's older sister. He's like obsessed with her. He's really put her up on a pedestal. It's like an extremely romantic love that he feels for her. He thinks she's like a goddess, basically. She talks to him one day and they talk about how there's this local market they're having or like festival called the Araby Bazaar. And she asks if he's going and he decides like, I'm going to get her a present. But his uncle like keeps him back very late. Is it an uncle or what? father yeah he lives with his aunt and uncle and he had asked him to give him like train fare and his uncle was like yeah i'll give it to you when i get home from work 
but he forgets and comes home really late and, like, isn't really, you know, being empathetic about it to the boy. And he's like, oh, yeah, sorry, I forgot. Here's your train fare. By the time he gets there, it's, like, 10 o'clock at night. The market's shutting down. He's, like, looking at all of this stuff. Like, again, weird themes of Orientalism, like lamps and vases and all kinds of, like, stuff that he couldn't possibly afford. And And he can't buy anything. And he realizes, like, this has been a huge disappointment. And the story just ends. He sees a shop girl flirting with two guys or, like, a stall girl, and he's kind of like, oh, my gosh, everything I thought about love was a lie. Like, it's all tawdry and cheap (laughs) and fake, and, you know, I thought this place was going to be awesome, but it's not. And he starts to get angry, and his love for the girl is destroyed, and his idealized image of this fair is destroyed, and then he's just standing there by himself and feeling angry and ashamed, and that's this story. And I guess the girl can be thought of as a symbol for, like, the East or, like, exoticism or, like, something new and exciting, and he was romanticizing it in his head and then found that it was disappointing. So, young love, what are you going to do? I really didn't like this story when I read it in high school because I was kind of like, you know, men do this all the time. Why do I need to be reading about it and feeling bad? that somebody did this (laughs) like why should I pity him I don't know are you supposed to feel bad for the boy I think you are that's yeah Mm. also this story so I don't know how I feel about the story it has some very very good individual sentences and the writing is really beautiful there's one line that I made a note of where he's talking about his initial feelings for his friend's sister and he says her name was like a summons to all my foolish blood and it's kind of cute at first he talks about like he would just find himself standing alone and basically praying but just saying like oh love oh love (laughs) but yeah I just um it's kind of weird. But anyway, this is a really famous one. Got any thoughts, Theo? Um, can you explain exactly what the, the thing is that men do all the time? I, I Maybe I misunderstood this story. Put women on pedestals and then just get angry when they're not oh, I see. the way that a man has decided they need to be. Okay. I guess, yeah. And everybody kind of does that to an extent. And like the different characters in these stories all kind of imagine something greater and then get disappointed. (laughs) Like, spoiler, that just kind of happens a lot. So the next story is called Eveline. This is about a girl. She's like 19 or 20 years old. And she is living with her father. And her mother died some years ago. And she had promised her mom like she would look after the family and take care of them, basically like her younger brothers and sisters. And so now she's like working in a in a shop and like it's not really going super well. Like she's nagged a lot. Her father's kind of abusive. Like he's mean to her from time to time. He takes all her money and like goes out drinking and stuff. So she's just kind of like struggling at home and she's like feeling very trapped. But she's begun seeing this sailor named Frank and Frank has clandestinely proposed to her because her dad doesn't approve of the relationship. And he wants to take her and sail away to Buenos Aires and they will live this like exciting life in another place far away from Dublin, far away from the shop, far away from like her home life and her father and all of this. And so she's thinking about how exciting this will be. But then there's a point at which she's getting ready to leave and she's like written letters to one letter to her dad, one letter to her younger brother, just kind of like saying goodbye and explaining things. And she's sitting there and she starts like reminiscing about her past and her childhood and her home and like some of the happier times she had there and how she had promised her mom she wouldn't abandon the family. She's kind of having second thoughts. And then in the street, she starts hearing like this organ playing, like there's a street organist down there and she remembers that 
That same sound had occurred the night before her mom died, and that brings her back to her mom's death, and she thinks, my mom had like a sad, frustrating life here. I don't want the same thing for myself. I'm going with Frank. So she goes to the docks with Frank, and they're getting on the ship, and Frank boards, and it's time for Eveline to like take his hand and get on the ship with him and sail away. But she all of a sudden begins feeling complete like paralysis and indecision, and She starts, like, mumbling this, like, repetitive prayer to herself to kind of, like, get some semblance of comfort. And in the end, she can't do it. And the ship sails away with Frank, like, calling her name. And it says she just stands there, like, basically as indecisive as an animal. And she's, like, lost all her ability to go and, like, realize her life. And she just stays behind. She has no expression. She has no expression, no love for him. We learn that she had two brothers and her favorite brother died so right now her family only consists of her alcoholic father and a brother who is away a lot he like decorates churches and just her life it's basically just her and her dad her dad always beat the brothers but not her but lately he's been like threatening to beat her Mm -hmm. and he's drunk all the time and like he's very abusive he won't give her money Like, he'll argue with her about money, and then he'll be like, well, why haven't you bought the food for dinner? And gives her the money, and she has to, like, sprint out and then run home and try to quickly cook him dinner. Yeah, like, he thinks, you're just going to waste it. I can't give it to you, but then he drinks a lot. Yeah, so it's just, um, I liked this story a lot more, and I was like, nice. There's going to be a happy ending that's going to be kind of bittersweet because she's leaving her family, and then the actual ending happens in the last couple sentences, and I'm like, oh no yeah yeah why and I think all of his stories kind of have this sense of like you could read them one way if you weren't thinking that hard about it you could think like well Eveline decided to stay home and like be with her family because she had been thinking like well my dad's not mean all the time like the other day I was sick and like he read me stories and he you know brought me food and stuff so it's like it's a complicated relationship right like her dad's not a black and white drunken monster like he's kind of a bad dude and he's abusive but like there's also these moments of tenderness so you could think like well, she decided to stay, but in truth, she didn't decide to stay. She, she just couldn't go. Couldn't decide yeah. anything, and so she was just locked in place. Yeah, and that's kind of a theme is, like, people just getting trapped in Dublin <laughs> and, like, not being able to escape. A lot of the stories are circles. Someone starts in one place, and they start to make a journey somewhere else, and then they just end up back where they started again hmm. with just kind of a small epiphany. But for her, I also was, you know, I'm reading it and I'm thinking like, oh, I bet Frank's going to be a bad dude. And like, he's tricking her. But no, he, from everything we learned in the book, he's like a really kind, nice guy who's deeply in love (laughs) with her. And he does already own a house in Buenos Aires. Like he's been living in Buenos Aires, but he just went back to Ireland to visit family and happened to fall in love with her. So like they're engaged and all this stuff. And I'm like, go girl, go. You deserve to be happy and then (laughs) she just like doesn't and he's been all over the world and exciting new things outside of ireland like buenos aires london paris germany all these things and like it's always calling to them but there's also a conflict and there's conflict between england and ireland and you know we'll see a little bit of that as well yeah i also find the elements of of repetition really interesting here because again it's like you had the the creepy old guy in the other story who just kept saying the same things over and over again then you've got like eveline just like mumbling a prayer to herself it's interesting it it all kind of falls together it doesn't make me want to go to dublin (laughs) and i've been before and i liked it but this these short stories i would not call this 
a love letter to Dublin. I would call it no. something else. <laughs> a, a letter to Dublin. <laughs> yeah, it's not like a tourism pamphlet or something. No, it's definitely not a pamphlet. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like, you get the feeling that James Joyce is, like, fascinated by this place and that he obviously holds some love for it to have observed it so carefully. But does he like it? <laughs> when you're going to talk about the next story, which is after the race, and, like, I think there's plenty of stories here where you see that, like, he's basically just, like, realistically as he sees it depicting Dublin, and, yeah, it's got, like, a gritty dark side, but there's reasons, like— people are oppressed and like there are bad things that like other countries have done to Ireland and Ireland just keeps like getting taken advantage of and right. yeah he loves it but he also realizes it has huge problems and you know you have to wonder like does he feel kind of paralyzed and trapped by the city the way that his characters seem to be you would probably guess yes but anyway well I think this is fairly relatable and I was going to kind of mention this more later too but like a lot of people think about like the place they're being from as being like a place you need to escape or you can't like live your life yeah. and mm. there are vices that keep people behind like indecision you know addiction things like that so love of family yeah. Love of family. Yeah. Love of your neighbor's older sister. Yeah. So the next story is called After the Race, and it has a yet older protagonist. <gasps> and I believe his name is Jimmy Doyle. Is that right? I know his name's Jimmy. Yep. He's 26. Jimmy Doyle. So, so his father has made a lot of money in his past. So he's like doing well. And he went off to college and sort of wasted. A, he calls it like a reasonable amount of money. <laughs> and his dad took care of his bills and was like almost proud of him, you know, because he's like, uh -huh. I started as this poor guy and now my son's able to waste money at Cambridge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's like, it's really cool how I was able to send this kid to Cambridge and have him not really do that well. Like, that's amazing. Yeah. And the narrator's like, look, Jimmy, he, yes, he wasted some money, but like, he's kind of reasonable. He understands that there was a lot of work put into gaining that money. So he feels like it's kind of out of his system now. He's ready to be responsible. But so <laughs> yeah. he has, he has some friends that he's made, some kind of like flashy friends. And one of them is a French guy named Charles, I guess, Seguin or Seguin, Seguin? something like that. Yeah. But so there was a famous race that took place in Dublin so any reader would have known that it was a reference to this and you learn like the Dubliners they always cheer for the French team like the French are on their side and this yeah. was an impression that Irish people to their detriment had for a while because they were let down by the French a couple times uh, fair weather friends <laughs> and also it's interesting because the race is taking place in Dublin mm -hmm. right yes and yet there's no Irish car right Joyce said the Irish spectators in the crowd are those of the quote gratefully oppressed they're like really excited to root for a different country oh, right wow. yeah and they also they learn like so a german belgian person gets first and then french people get second and third so everyone's like yeah yeah we came in third <laughs> <laughs> right so we zoom in on one of these french cars and this is where we see jimmy so he's hanging out with his french friend and this hungarian guy and then a french canadian guy who's cousins with the french guy who's the yeah. cousin of them so it's these four guys hanging out now here's my question about this 
So I understand this is called after the race, so obviously the race yes. already happened, but they weren't racing in the car together, right? Because I was like, four guys in a car? That's going to make the car go slow. No, but it was his French friend's car. Yeah. So this is important because Jimmy, he's talked to his parents and they are investing. He helped finance it. Yeah, they're investing an amount of money in a new motor company business that Seguin is starting up mm. with his cousin, who's like a mechanic or something. So they've invested some money. So the fact that one of the cars got or got second or third or whatever is like very promising for them. I so see. he's thinking, yes, my dad's right. There is money in this car thing. It's not hopeless. <laughs> so, you know, Jimmy is kind of hanging out and he's like, wow, this is so awesome. I'm hanging out with these cosmopolitan people. And they're about to go out that night. So there's a dinner. Jimmy's parents are going and they hang out. They meet up with this Englishman who has a yacht, I guess. Um, the dinner is at Jimmy's house, I think. It's after the dinner. They're going and they're walking around the city. Yes. And afterwards, they meet up with this Englishman who Jimmy had never met before. And we learn at the beginning of the story that Jimmy's dad was previously like a big nationalist like Irish nationalist but that his dad quickly realized you know you need to suppress those feelings if you're going to be successful but hanging out with this Englishman Jimmy gets into a big argument with him about Ireland <laughs> <laughs> and the French guy has to put a damper on that he shuts it down yeah I, I thought about this I was like yeah I empathize with that because not because I'm an Irish nationalist and it gets me in trouble oh, but am. just like <laughs> it doesn't get me in trouble though <laughs> Sometimes at work, I just like, uh, actually very frequently at work, I say things that are on my mind that I shouldn't say. And the fine art of not saying your opinions when they're not popular is one that I just continually don't learn. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to be an Irish nationalist in Ireland. <laughs> you'd think it would be the easiest place to do it, but apparently not. Yeah, you'd think it would. But anyway, so they're walking around the city and they encounter an American, another flashy foreign person. And yeah, so he's just got all these foreigners he's hanging out with. So they go on this yacht and the Hungarian guy is playing the piano. I was just going to connect it and say the American invites them onto his yacht. Yes. So they're they're like, um, the Hungarian's playing the piano. Also, the Hungarian had previously been like trying to argue about renaissance music or like extinct instruments and saying like these particular instruments were way better lutes are stupid these are the best kind and he's trying to like sing people bits of old songs but just like nobody even cares enough to argue with him about it <laughs> i was getting i was getting ignatius from a confederacy of dunces vibes. <laughs> yeah right right he loved medieval music the hungarian's like a poor musician who keeps trying to have music conversations but no Nobody is able to engage. <laughs> <laughs> so they're on this yacht and they're drinking and partying. And at one point, the, the I guess, protagonist, Jimmy Doyle, like makes a speech. And pretty much immediately after, like he's been drinking, he can't even remember what he said. But because his friends cheered, he was like, oh, it must have been yeah. really good because all these <laughs> impressive people clapped. So he's like, he doesn't really have much of a sense of self. And he's like, not really so much enjoying what's going on as he's like enjoying the fact that he's yeah. there and he's with these like flashy, impressive people. Mm -hmm. And they start playing cards. And 
he is losing very badly. And he, at some point, is thinking to himself, like, I wish this would stop. I wish this would stop. But he doesn't stop. He keeps going with the flow. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, he has lost so much money. And he says, I'm really going to regret this tomorrow. But the irony is that it is tomorrow. Because at that moment, the Hungarian pianist throws open the door and says, gentlemen, daybreak. Oh, gosh. And then, like, the gray light filters in and that's it. But, like, oh, no. this story, you this will make you feel better. You don't get the impression that he's lost all his money, a terrible amount of money. No, it's just it's no, a, it is just enough to embarrass himself. But the usual. Right. Amount. It is a friendly game between friends. And he just lost a lot. He just lost a lot of money, but he's a rich guy or like pretty rich. So he's middle class, I would say. Yeah. To me, the sad part of the story, I, I don't know if I would say middle class. They're investing in a foreign automobile manufacturing business. And his dad owns like a bunch of. They got Rachel. No, his dad <laughs> owns a ton of stuff in Ireland. He was even referred to as like a like a magnate. Or, I don't remember what they called him, but but they're new money. Like they're not stable. Yeah. Oh yeah, they're new. But there's no evidence whatsoever that his dad is like going to be destroyed by this loss. So the to me the sad part of the story it's nothing to do with him losing at cards. It's just like. This dude, he's not even having fun. It's all he cares about is like, yeah. how do other people think about me? <laughs> yeah. Like, how does this look to people on the outside? It, it would look to them like... I'm very lucky, so I, I must be having fun. Yeah, and again, there's all these themes of Ireland being, like, kind of taken advantage of by the world or something, and, like, this Irishman just lost a bunch of money to a bunch of foreigners. Yeah. Ireland's kind of been humiliated at the end, yeah. <laughs> but... It's fine on a larger scale. Yeah. He actually, so far, he's got one of the better stories. <laughs> Theo, what did you think about um, the part where he's like, oh, I'm going to regret this tomorrow, and then he finds out it is tomorrow? I love that. <laughs> I really love that. That's his epiphany. He realized what time it was. That famous Joycean epiphany. <laughs> I like how because Theo was really into it and then Rachel was like, here, it, you're not going to feel so bad about it. And I was like, Theo feels great about it. He loves this already. <laughs> I love the tomorrowness. Yeah, the tomorrowness of this thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a sad story to me. I've experienced that. The arrival of the new day. <laughs> no, no. Just the feeling of like, just like feeling like you have to do something because you're hanging out with these people or something and you really don't want to do it. Like a podcast and you keep mm -hmm. doing it for over a year. <laughs> you're like, God, when will this stop? <laughs> well, in this case, the guy wanted to do it, but he realized as it was happening, like, this is not going well. And it turns out he really didn't want to do it for the doing it. He wanted to do it for what it meant. But yeah. Yeah. So, um... The next story I thought was really interesting. So it's called Two Gallants, and the title's kind of ironic. It has the worst guys so far, like really bad guys. <laughs> yeah, they should have called it Two Goofuses. Yeah, seriously. Ooh. Right? Do you guys remember Goofus and Gallant? Have we talked about that on the podcast? Oh, we remember. Yeah. I don't think we've talked about it, but it's just a thing. It was in a children's magazine. Yeah, it was in Highlights magazine, and you'd have Goofus doing all the stupid stuff, and then Gallant would do the good things. But so these two guys are not very Gallant. They're, they're pretty big Goofuses. So Goofus number one is named Lanahan, and he is kind of like the main protagonist of the story. It's told mostly from his perspective, but it's not first person. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of been described by his friends as like a leech. And no, like his enemies call him a leech, but he says like he's really good at getting his friends to not realize he's a leech yeah that's what i was thinking like he's good spirited and he like makes people feel good and he's always like smiling and like being the the yes man and things like that so people like buy him food and drinks and stuff but he's but like he's always thinking 
I don't want to be that much of a yes man. Like I need to be just enough of a yes man that they like it, but not mm-hmm. so much where they realize what I'm doing. So he's you are in his mind and you kind of get this constant push pull of like, how agreeable do I need to be? Yeah. And so he's walking with his friend Goofus, too, who is named Corley. And it's not really clear, like, what these two guys really do for work or if they work. But we learn over time that, like, basically what they have is a little, like, gambit together where they talk girls into stealing from their employers and giving them money, basically. Nice. So they're, like, kind of two guys out on the town, like, using their, like— fleeting youth and I don't know that they're that good looking but they're like charming at least and they can like kind of get girls to you know do things for them so Coralie is saying that he's seeing a girl like who's a maid in a wealthy house and he calls her a slavey which is like I guess a term for a girl who is a maid is a maid but he also like uses it to mean like yeah slaveys you don't have to worry about like wooing them too much like she'll just do what I want her to do Mm. and Lanahan is a little worried that maybe this girl might not like be the best target for them Coralie brags oh she doesn't even know my name yet like I've expertly managed to avoid giving her my name so she can't possibly like get us in trouble or anything Mm. so he's confident he can get what he wants from her and they go like they're walking around and Coralie is like here we're gonna see her on the street corner up here and Lanahan is like can I look at her and Coralie's like don't be coming on to my slavey like that's mine and he's like I just want to look at her dude Mm. so they walk and they see her and she's like A young woman, she's not pretty, but she, like, looks, like, healthy and ruddy and, like, strong or whatever. So Coralie and the maid go off together, and they're like, we're going to meet back up with you later with the, like, the spoils. So Lanahan is by himself, and he's kind of walking along, and, like, when he was with Coralie, yeah, he was, like— charming and like making him feel good basically but now that he's alone he gets kind of like contemplative and melancholy and he's walking along and he sees like a street harpist and the harp is apparently a symbol for Ireland which I didn't know but the harp is like very um like worn out and just like tired and like not a very nice harp anymore so he like hears the sad little harp playing and he thinks to himself like gosh it's just exhausting what I have to do like it's exhausting to be on all the time and have to be a people person and have to tell people what they want to hear and then constantly all you know make all these little adjustments so that they don't think that I'm leeching off of them like Rachel was saying and he just thinks to himself like everything that's supposed to bring me delight actually just brings me sadness because I don't have a stable life I don't have a stable job like I would like to have a nice home life and be able to just like go home with a family and everything but I don't have any of that because I've like messed up my life basically he wants a simple woman who has has money. That would be the dream. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> yeah. So he wanders into a restaurant and he has a meal of green peas and ginger beer, which I was like, is that a normal meal for someone to have? But it's also symbolic because it's like the colors of the Irish flag. Mm. The green peas and sound so good. They like, do sound the really good. The way that they're described, they're like fresh, warm peas with a little vinegar and some black pepper. And yeah. I'm just like, I would love to eat some freaking vinegar peas. Vinegar on peas, man. I'm going to go to the... Uh, oh, crap. I, darn it. I was going to say I'm going to go to the um, farmer's market today, but this podcast recording is going to prevent that. So who knows when I'll get my hands on some fresh peas. Oh, no. To be honest, sometimes I eat a lot of peas. I believe it. I like peas. Like literally a lot. <laughs> like literally a lot, not figuratively. It's a bunch of peas. Do you eat fresh peas, canned peas, frozen peas? Frozen. I want fresh ones. Do you warm them up first? Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So many peas. When I was in Singapore, they put peas on dessert, which I'd never seen before, but it was good. Oh, interesting. Some are very sweet. They also put corn on pancakes. Corn is sweet? Yeah. 
<sighs> well, that's their culture. Um, I have a story about a vegetable. Can I tell a, a little Jackie story? Yeah. Bring us up a little bit. Tell us a story about a vegetable. So I came to work on Monday and I brought a like a Tupperware container of like baby carrots. And I don't usually put my carrots in containers, but this is very important to the story. She just holds them in her hands. <laughs> I usually just keep them in the bag, but for some reason they were in a container. Pockets. And so like I brought this container, I put it in my purse, took it out at work, and I'm like in the break room. And there's a woman there who I've never met before. She was, like, from some other department. But I took the container out, and the peas – or, sorry, the carrots were screaming. They were making this little sound, like, ah. Like, there was this little sound coming out of the container. And I, like, was like, what is going on? And I, like, turned to this woman, and I was like, can you listen to my carrots? (laughs) And she was like, what? And I was like, am I crazy? They're making a sound. And she listened, and sure enough. There was, like, air escaping through the little... Was it, like, it was closed, it was making... And then you opened it all, and I was like, ah! And then you had to close it again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, and then I shut it. (laughs) No, yeah, it was, like, this little stream of steady air bubbles or something that was coming out. And I was like, why are these carrots screaming? Like, why is there so much Uh, air coming out of them? That's cool. I've had that with chickpeas before. I don't know if I would call it cool, but... Ah. Do they chirp? Uh, No, they they just scream in their own little way. They just scream in their own little chickpea way. Yeah. Well, it was just like, I have this tendency to just say bizarre things to people without realizing until after I've said it. So when I said to this woman, can you listen to my mm. carrots? I can't. I think you knew. What could she have thought was wrong with me? I think you knew. I, think I didn't. You... No, I didn't plan that. Didn't plan it. Hmm. I didn't expect them to be making a noise. Hmm. Theo saying he thinks I did it on purpose to be funny. I don't think he means you made your carrots make a noise on purpose. I could mean that oh, too. She orchestrated the whole thing. <laughs> she was inflicting physical torture on the carrots to make them scream. That would be terrible. Yeah, and then I was like, hey, lady, listen to these painful carrots. Mm-hmm. Wow. So then did you eat them after all that screaming? Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, I ate them. I had to. So it didn't work. And now you make that noise. Mm-mm. What would you do if like, I have no carrots and I must scream? If I were haunted by the ghost of my carrots? Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you if you were just constantly emitting a like little noise from somewhere in your body and you couldn't quite pick out where it was, I think that would be very annoying for everyone. Yeah, I'm wondering like what what if your significant other always emitted that noise? Would you be able to handle it? No, she'd send him to Singapore. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say they can deal with this shit. <laughs> right. You go make that little air noise somewhere else. Because you don't know if it's contagious, honestly. The screaming? The screaming? Yeah, better be wary of that. <laughs> All right. So anyway, um, he eats these peas in the story, and um, he goes out, and he, like, meets some friends, and his friends in the street are, like, making critical comments of people who are walking by and just, like, making trivial gossip. And he was like, I don't actually like any of these people. Like, this sucks. And so he goes to meet Corley. Corley is late, and Lanahan thinks to himself, like, ugh, he's cut me out of the deal. Like, he's gone off and betrayed me. But finally, Corley and the girl come back, and the girl goes back into her employer's house, and Lanahan is, like, full of anxiety. And he's like, okay, well, I thought he betrayed me, but here he is. Like, maybe, did it work? Did it work? And he's like, did, did you try the girl? Like, did she do what we wanted? And Corley won't answer him. And then finally, they stop under a streetlight, and Corley opens his fist to reveal a single gold coin. Yep. Mm. So they're stealing from the cash register, not like products from the... No, they're stealing from the the family is the implication, that the family she works for. Oh, oh, right. It's a maid. It's a maid. But they're putting this girl at risk of losing her job, for sure. <laughs> they're, they're using her instead of just stealing on their own. So there are a couple things that an audience at the time would notice that we don't necessarily know, which I'll talk about briefly. But also, 
So when I read it, I did not get the impression at all that this is a thing that they habitually do. It seemed to me much more like this is a new thing they're trying out. The, like, getting girls to steal for them. I think the thing they habitually do is, like, come up with schemes to get easy money. Like, he doesn't have another way of making his living. Yes. The narrator hints that Coralie is an informant for the police, actually. The narrator says, like, people frequently see him, like, talking excitedly to police officers, but nothing is said in a straightforward way. But it does seem like Corley, at least, has a steadier stream of income than Lenahan does. Mm -hmm. Also, at one point in the story, Corley talks about, like, oh, you know, I used to go out on dates with girls and I would spend money on the dates, but this is way better. Now I can get (laughs) women to give me money. (laughs) Yeah, now I realize women just give me things, yeah. And I don't know if this is getting tiring, but Ireland is being taken advantage of. And so, like, these themes of, like, the harp being worn worn down and Coralie talking about how, like, he can just manipulate women. Ireland, maybe to Joyce, was kind of, like, playing the role of a woman who's being taken advantage of. Yeah. It's about, like, his life, like, Lanahan's life and his thoughts and, like, feeling hopeless, but it's also about the larger issues of the day. Yeah, and so one thing that we would know is, like, or that an audience would know is a gold coin. One gold coin is, like, basically four times as much as the maid would have been paid in a year. Okay. It's, it's like, four times her annual salary at best. Wow, that's a risk. Because of how she looks, the way she's described with, like, like a ruddy, healthy face and kind of stocky, it's implied that she has come up from the country. Like, she's not a city girl. But she's dressed well because, like, even though maids weren't paid very much, they got their food and their lodging included, so they did tend to have more spending money. So, like, being a maid to a wealthier family was a good job compared to, like, factory work, for example. But girls who came up from the country, for some reason, they got paid even less. (laughs) Like, I don't know why it's the same job so she would have maybe a gold coin might be like five or six times her annual salary i mean it describes how she's dressed which i mean i was like i don't know if this is normal or not but it is a kind of a strange appearance she's got because she's dressed like a like a maid like a like a girl but then she's also got a feather boa and a sailor's cap so it's kind of like yeah she has the money to buy these things but none of it's it's like not really a sophisticated look (laughs) she doesn't have style but like the stuff seems to be good quality Mm -hmm. it says she's wearing like a sturdy leather belt and all this other stuff. But anyway, so that's that story. (laughs) Gucci belt. Get those Gucci shoes. Do y'all think you could ever be swayed to steal from your employer for a guy? For a guy? I mean, I would just do it for myself. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I don't steal from the hospital. Um, (laughs) I've never stolen a bag of blood from my vampire boyfriend. (laughs) Why would you ask? I'd be tough to have a vampire boyfriend. (laughs) You would. Should I tell a story about stealing from work? It's very minor. Yeah. (laughs) So last year, or sorry, two years ago when COVID first started, y'all remember how like at first people were saying like, don't wear masks that's taking them away from like the healthcare professionals. And I thought the same thing because that's what we were always told for like a little while. And then that obviously changed very quickly. Right. So when it first started, the masks were in such short supply. You know, people were like making their own. It was this big deal. And I would like sometimes still have to go into work even though we were like mostly working from home. And so I went to work and my coworker who was stuck at home was like, Jack, can you bring me some masks? And I was like, I don't know, man. Like I really thought I would get in huge trouble. (laughs) Masks, right? Like the thing you're supposed to wear now. And I was like, okay. So I remember like going to the stash of masks and like taking like four of them. And I was like, okay, 
And then I, like, hid them in my sleeve, which is, like, definitely not super sanitary, like, destroying the point of masks. <laughs> and I, like, walked past the manager's office, and I was like, she's not going to notice this. And then I – it was, like, this huge clandestine operation. And then, like, the girl came to my house, and I, like – pass them off to her by throwing it to her so we wouldn't get close to each other. Wow. And I was like, oh, my God, what if they saw me steal these masks? <laughs> these, like, four cheap surgical masks. You stole all four for her. You didn't keep any for yourself. Yeah, it was like her and her husband. Her and her three husbands. Her and her three husbands. I did some stealing from work when I was younger that was much less um, ethically justifiable. Didn't you take, like, a box of cereal and oh, yeah. a yeah. loaf of bread? No, a huge trash bag of cereal. Yeah. <laughs> Not a trash bag. <laughs> I'm imagining it like the movie theater trash can popcorns or whatever. Oh, I think all this cereal went bad. I need to put it in the trash. And then yeah. Just dove in <laughs> like Scrooge McDuck, your ill-gotten cereal. <laughs> I'm not proud of it, but. Why? Who, who? fucking cares. So what did you take home? Because you didn't take home a trash bag of cereal. He used to work in a cafeteria when he was an undergrad. That's what we need to clarify. Yeah. Picture the opening scene of Aladdin where he steals an apple because he's hungry. That's the end. It was exactly He like steals that. only what he can't afford. And that's everything, to quote Aladdin. Yeah, it was just a big bag of Apple Jacks. It was a very large, it was just like <laughs> bulk-sized bag of Apple Jacks. But and, not as big as a trash bag. Well, as big as a small trash bag. Oh, and Jackie was right this whole time. Well, I, she was talking about a large trash bag. I could see it in her eyes. <laughs> I'm picturing him like with Santa's sack, just hauling these Apple Jacks home, like hunched over. And it was so stupid because I wasn't supposed to have anything to do with that cereal. So like, I just like- <laughs> Because they looked at you. They said, don't let this guy anywhere near the cereal. We can see what he's going to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just sort of walked through, like I had to walk through the manager's office actually even to like take this thing. With your giant bag of cereal. Yeah. Kids don't do this. I feel really bad about this still. I walked out and like hit it under, a a seat in a booth and then later I came back during like a meal hour when I wasn't working and I stuffed it in my backpack and then left. That's fine. Why do you feel bad about that? Aww. They should have been paying you more. Theo, the world should feel bad for you having to do that. <laughs> I didn't have to do that. The reason he did all. that is because he was going to be stuck at school over spring break and he needed food. <laughs> I thought that was No, no, that was a different time. Oh, you just wanted a lot of cereal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, here's how it could have been not bad if I had shared it with anyone. But no. You didn't even share it with your roommate Jarrett? Maybe they don't need stolen cereal like you do. I didn't need it. I didn't <laughs> need it. He just wanted it. I could afford cereal, but I had it in my I had such a scarcity mindset that I was like, I can't even pay for cereal. I think it's okay. I think it's a, well, we, you should have stolen his milk. That's way more expensive than cereal. You just eat that cereal dry. He told me he had a goat. He had a goat tethered up behind the dorm. Yeah, I stole a goat from the dining hall. Right. Oh, I thought all Oberlin students had a goat assigned to them. Mm-hmm. Oh. Like at Hogwarts, you get an owl. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Every Oberlin student gets a goat when they come in. <laughs> this goat sends mail for me. So that's extra funny because I actually couldn't remember if you had stolen cereal or apples. Probably both at some apple point. Apple cereal. But, <laughs> but the fact that Aladdin steals an apple and almost gets his arm chopped off. Yeah. Or no, he steals bread and an apple. I don't remember. He steals bread and an apple. So basically, Theo is Aladdin. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in many ways. But I think that one of the other issues is I think that was the last bag of Apple Jacks. So nobody else who wanted Apple Jacks that day at breakfast got Apple Jacks because I had them hidden under. How a, could you? I still think it's fine. I, don't think I mean, we've told stories about being really poor in college before, too. But I remember one time. Did I tell the story already? I got I bought a dress, like a vintage dress for like $20, like not that much. But to me, a single dress for $20 at that time was like extravagant. Yeah. And someone stole money out of the dorm room 
And then I didn't have any money to eat anymore. So I sold this dress to Rachel, who I don't think even really wanted the dress, but she just like nicely bought it. At a profit? Or was Rachel like, oh, I can get a steal for this. I'll give you five bucks. No, not at a profit. Buy low, sell high. No, she was with me when I bought it. So I couldn't have told her, this is worth $100. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So that was nice of Rachel to give me burrito money. I feel like you also could have just been like, can I have $20? (laughs) No, I my pride wouldn't let me. I said, I need to give you this dress that probably doesn't even fit you and that you don't like. Well, you can have it back now if you want. I'm sure I still have it. And wow. then you can give me back my $20. <laughs> With interest. Uh-uh, you're never getting that back. Um, Theo, anyone who's ever worked in the service industry, I'm sure has like given their friends, you know, free French fries or like a soda and pretended they didn't buy a soda or something. You know what I mean? But no, I don't think that I would steal four times my annual salary yeah. from an employer. <laughs> I mean, that's how big this Apple Jacks bag was. Four times. It was four times your annual salary. No, but really, like, I, yeah, I get that. I get like, yeah, give them, give them a little extra fries or something like that. But do you give them like the whole bag of fries? And instead that... of giving it to a friend, you're eating it yourself. Yeah. I'm telling you, it's really not bad. It's so endearing how you're so concerned about the Apple Jacks for the rest of the school. Like, do you think everyone in Oberlin just like needed those Apple Jacks? Yeah, there's a protest afterwards. Apple Jacks are not even that popular of a cereal. <laughs> Sorry. You, if you'd stolen all the Reese's, like stole puffs, the Reese's yeah. puffs or something. No, that's the best Oberlin had to offer was Apple Jacks. There were no Reese's Puffs. Are you serious? <laughs> Oberlin is a private school for rich kids. They don't have Reese's Puffs. What about that peanut butter chocolate flavor? Where are they supposed to get it? It's bad management. It's bad management. <laughs> because they hire okay. thieves all the time. Yeah. Okay, I do need <laughs> Need to say something. This story reminded me. Fine. I have to issue a correction. My mom called me last night and she was <gasps> laughing. Oh, and no. I was like, what's up? And she said, I'm in the car with my friend. I'm we're listening to your podcast. And I just heard the part where you said, My mom's probably gonna be mad and be like, That's not true. And I'm calling because you were right about that. That gold coin was a Chuck E. Cheese token, you idiot. <laughs> and she said, I didn't give you one gold coin. I gave you four silver coins. Oh. And I was like, Okay, well, mom, the reason I don't know is because you immediately said, I'm you gonna kept keep them. These. So you don't lose them. <laughs> but so she wanted me to tell everyone. She was like, one gold coin wouldn't be $50. It would be like $2,000. And I was like, I don't know. Maybe it was really, really small. She said, no, it was four silver coins. And each coin or like each person's coins had like a personal design, not personalized, but they each had a different image stamped on the front. Mm. So that's why I was thinking about pandas. So maybe she gave me some panda coins or, but I mean, that would make more sense for Becca. But anyway. How much were each of those coins worth? I, she doesn't remember. And I was like, do you know where they are? And she's like, yeah, I've got them all in a box. So she is kind of building a dragon's hoard. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway. So Christmas morning for you guys was like, you woke up and you rushed down to the tree and she was like. She just flashed some silver coins and put them in her pocket. Yeah, see this? That's yours. <laughs> but uh, Theo, so now can someone still kill me or is it, it's all about that gold, baby? No, silver is precious too. All right. What if I just take, what if I just cut off like one of your extremities? Like, oop, cut off Rachel's left arm. Can I have one silver coin? I don't know. Cause what if you cut off yeah. my head? Cut off one fourth of Rachel's body and then you get one, one silver coin. <laughs> well, I was counting Rachel's body as, a, as only arms and legs for some reason, like her torso and her head don't. Oh, matter. I see. Yeah. This is an auditory medium. So people don't realize I'm kind of like, I'm basically like a cherubim. You know, but instead of a ball with a bunch of eyes, I'm just a ball with mm-hmm. two arms and two legs. Yeah, we nobody knows where Doesn't my voice like is coming from. Me. Huh? 
Doesn't sound like a ball to me. I mean, the, they're sticking out. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. That makes sense. Doesn't I mean, just, sound like a fun party. Seriously, to me. like take a look. Like we're video chatting right now. Or maybe you're saying I don't sound like a ball. Like my voice sounds like the voice of a regular human, not just a ball with appendages. Yeah, could have had me fooled. Well, now I'm thinking, what if you're just arms and legs tangled up into a ball? I don't like that. Yeah, like a bunch of rubber bands put together. Yeah. But you liked being a ball with appendage? Okay, whatever. I have no choice, Jackie. It's not up to me. <laughs> All right, we got to get back to the choice. We got to get back. We got to get back. So uh, this is yours, Rachel, the boarding oh, house. wow. So this one. Ooh, I'm so excited. I get to do a little cloud. She gets to do a little cloud. That's what Jackie calls farting. <laughs> do a little dance. No, I thought it was a dance. Oh. <laughs> uh, speaking of farting. Oh, no. Theo just put his microphone on mute. <laughs> All right, I'm back. Okay, so the story, the boarding house, is kind of interesting, I guess. So this one opens with... There's a middle-aged woman. Nice. Her dad was a butcher and her husband worked for her dad. So they got married and started a butcher business. But once her dad butcher died, the husband butcher became an alcoholic and like <laughs> lost all his money and whatever. So she went to a priest and and got a separation, took her money out of the business and took the kids. And she's opened a boarding house. I guess unlike my grandmother, she didn't get excommunicated by the Catholic Church for her divorce. She didn't get divorced. She got separated. Separ I guess my grandmother should have just separated. Yeah. yeah. Sanctioned separation. And so the husband is like still around and it's his life is very sad and like they have nothing to do with him. So she's got this like decently prosperous boarding house. She has a son who I think he's working as a clerk somewhere. And she has a 19 year old daughter who used to work as like a typist or a secretary at a business. But her father used to show up all the time and like ask if he could talk to his daughter. So the mom was like, uh, no, you're going to work for me in the boarding house. So and the boarding house has like some people who live there permanently. They're mostly like city workers. And then they also have like tourists who come in. Yeah. So it's always full of young men, basically. And some artistes as well. Artistes. <laughs> That's yeah. how they're called. <laughs> yeah. So the daughter works in the boarding house. And the mom is kind of thinking, you know, young men like to know that there's a young woman around and I'm going to kind of keep an eye out and see if anything happens between my daughter and any of the boarders. For a long time, nothing happens. So it's like she brought the girl home, like, to work there because she wanted to keep her away from her dad. Yeah. But also she's kind of thinking, like, well, there's an extra little benefit, which is, like, it's going to be nice for these guys to have her around and that'll make my business better. Right. And maybe she can find a husband among one of the boarders. And nothing happens for a while. So she's like, I might send my daughter back out to work again since nothing's happening. But she realizes that the daughter is like gotten up this flirtation with a boarder named Mr. Doran. So the daughter is 19 and Mr. Doran is like 32. 35. The mom yeah. doesn't know exactly, but we know he's in his like early 30s. He's never been married. Because she says like he's old enough to know better. Yes. Like he maybe shouldn't have done this. Like it wasn't smart of him to start this affair. But he's like kind of steady. Yeah. But so the mom knows what's going on. The boarders know what's going on. And the daughter knows that the mom knows but isn't doing anything. And she's kind of like, huh, I wonder why my mom's not doing anything. That makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> so at one point, the daughter and Mr. Doran, they have sex. And the mom knows about it. So when the story opens, the mom is preparing to confront him and just basically be like, you got to marry her. 
Mm. Yeah. She says some women would ask for money, like just say, you got to pay me, uh-huh. you know, retribution basically, but I'm not going to settle for just money. The only thing that's going to fix this is she needs to marry him. Right. Because he's stable enough. Yeah. And she's thinking this is the kind of guy who would be worried enough about his reputation that he'll marry her. And she's like, oh, if the flirtation had been with one of these other guys, maybe I would have put a stop to it, but I'm pretty sure that I can kind of control this outcome. The guy he works for is like a pretty well-known wine merchant who's like Catholic. So if they find out he had sex with someone, then it would be a big problem. Yeah. So and of course, it's more a problem for the girl. So the other thing is like you get inside the head of her, like the mom, and you also get inside the head of Mr. Doran. And then a little bit you get inside the head of Polly, the daughter. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Doran is like, shit, now I'm going to have to maybe marry this girl or I'm going to have to like flee. My reputation's going to be ruined. Polly like doesn't come from a super impressive family. Like, you know, her mom owns this boarding house. Her dad's a drunk. Sometimes her grammar is bad. Her grammar is bad. And his family is like higher class. Yeah. Because her mom owns a boarding house, which wasn't like super well respected. Family doesn't have a lot of money. The dad is embarrassing. And it's also going to be a little embarrassing for him to marry this girl who's also been flirting with everybody else in the boarding house. But then he also starts to think like, well, but she's been really nice to me. And I, I do think she's really pretty. And we have had this attraction. Like maybe it could be okay. And then he has to go talk to the mom. And he remembers, like, the reason they that he started to like her is because she was just, like, she's just very nice. Mm-hmm. So he remembers, you know, sometimes I would have to come back late from work and she would, you know, heat up dinner, especially for me, and we would just sit together and talk. And if the weather was bad, she'd always make me a drink. And it was, you know, just sweet of her. Yeah. So he's like, that would actually be really nice. Like if we got married and then I came home and there she was like, Mm -hmm. wouldn't that be pretty good? Like they had genuine feelings for each other. Yeah. But he's also second guessing because he's like, did I really have feelings for her? And then he's like, well, yeah, I did. Mm -hmm. Well, but come on, like she's kind of low class. But was she just hot? Yeah. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. did her mom plan this on purpose? Did she plan this? on purpose like are they taking advantage of me am I taking advantage of her like I definitely wasn't the only one so now these feelings that had been pure and just fun for a while now are starting to have this tinge of like game strategy almost and Polly it gets into her head and she comes to him and she's like oh my god what am I gonna do I'm gonna have to end my life like my honor is ruined yeah and she's crying and crying and then so Mr. Doran goes down to talk to the mom and we don't get to be present for that conversation we're left upstairs with Polly and Polly is crying and then she like kind of calms herself down a little bit and starts to think like maybe it might be nice to be married like kind of the same thing that Mr. Doran had done like Hmm. you know maybe this could be okay and she starts having these like hopes and visions for the future and then the story ends with him calling for her saying like Mr. Doran wants to talk to you and then her reverie ends. The narrator says like after a little while of her waiting upstairs she totally forgets what she's waiting for and she's just kind of lying there basically blank and she knows she's waiting for something that doesn't know what. So then when she hears like Mr. Doran's waiting for you it says like she remembers what she was waiting for. And then that's the end of the story. Uh, and and it's like a bad thing. Like she was doing okay and then she remembered what she was waiting for. I don't think so. It just says, come down, dear. Mr. Doran wants to speak to you. Then she remembered what she had been waiting for. And that's the end. If you want to think that it's a bad thing, you can if you want. But I, I certainly wouldn't say that that's the ending. Here's why I think it. So it says, her memories gradually gave place to hopes and visions of the future. Her hopes and visions were so intricate that she no longer saw the the pillows on which she was looking at and she didn't remember she was waiting for anything. 
then they called to her and she remembered what she was waiting for. Yeah, but I don't think there's an implication. I feel like that sentence fragment, then she remembered what she had been waiting for, period. Like, that tells me, like, that kind of yanked her out of her hopes and visions because she had been thinking of a nice future and now she's like, shit, now I remember I have to go down and we don't know if he's going to say goodbye. You're you're reading so much into what that that's not there. Like, I think it's fine for you to say, like, if that were me, yeah. then to me, that would be a bad thing. But you can't just be like, then she's like, shit, I have to go downstairs because that's not in there. It just says she remembers what she was waiting for. What What is happening in the story is we don't know the outcome of this conversation. Like, the mom had been saying to herself, and it, it's repeated multiple times, like, she feels sure she would win, which to me, the more you repeat, like, she felt sure it would go well. That kind of implies to me it might not go well. And we don't know the outcome. We don't know if he said, like, yeah, I'll marry her or no, I'm leaving forever. So all we know is that she's waiting for this outcome and we don't get to know what it is. Yeah, but if you had to bet money on it, it would be ver a very safe bet that he's marrying her. Don't you wish Joyce had made it, like, a little more clear and it was something like, then, regretfully, she was sad to remember what she had been waiting for, and it was bad. Something like that? Yeah, and it was bad. That's what Jackie wants her to say. But wouldn't that just be so much better? We'd understand. <laughs> I'm not saying I know what, what the outcome is based on that feeling. I'm saying she's stressed out waiting for it. Like, she's lost in her hopes and visions, and then she remembers what she was waiting for, and she doesn't know what the outcome is going to be. I think be. she's scared of the actual conversation. It's going to be an awkward convo. Yeah, well, I, that's what I think is, like, regardless of whether he marries her or not, the whole point is, like, what they had liked about their relationship is about to become much more official and more strategic, and marriage is, like— Yes, it's a way of getting away and adventuring and stuff like Eveline, but it's also a trap and an end of a way of life. From a practical perspective, this is a very good outcome for Polly. Yeah. Especially compared to her family life. But things just got real. Yeah, things got real. Things just got what real. we know about Mr. Doran is that he's like a pretty sober, responsible guy who's respected in the community. We're in his mind and he's got some doubts, but he's not an asshole like most of these guys. So if she marries him, she will have one of the better outcomes of any character that we've seen in this book so far. Yes, and yet I still think it's sad because even though it's one of the better outcomes, it's still like... There's a tinge of sadness to it. Bye-bye, childhood. It's always sad to live in a society that's like, oh, a woman has been ruined. Mm -hmm. So for me, like, that's the societal part is what gets me. I'm not so upset about her having to stop daydreaming. <laughs> Can I just say, I know James Joyce is, like, one of the greatest writers of all time. Mm -hmm. But that ending kind of reminds me of, like, a scary stories to tell in the dark sort of ending. Yeah. <laughs> then she said, it's not a dog, it's a rat. Like, it's the same sort of and thing. And then she remembered that it wasn't a dog, it was a rat. <laughs> yeah, and it was bad and she hated it. <laughs> I like that rat dog. So, I don't know, check minus for that ending line. All right, check minus. Yeah. It's vague. Hi, everyone. I hope you're enjoying what you've been hearing. This is Fire the Cannon, as you probably guessed, because we're halfway through the episode. That's right. Only half left, guys. Get excited. <laughs> if you, if you, if you want to support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash firethecanon. And there we have various tiers of various giving levels, and you can get various prizes, such as you can see bonus episodes, or you can see stickers. Oh, no, you can be given stickers. You can hear <laughs> bonus episodes, and you can be given stickers. <laughs> we really appreciate any support that you can give. Make sure you... Uh, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us them five stars. You can find us on all sorts of social media. We've got 
TikTok, we got Twitter, we got Instagram, all at Fire the Cannon Pod. And that's it, baby. Back to the episode. <laughs> all right. So we're on to the final story for this section, which is called A Little Cloud. And Jackie, tell Theo the name of the main character. Little Chandler. <laughs> <gasps> oh. It's you. And Little Cloud, same initials. Little His name is T. Chandler, but everyone calls him Little Chandler. T. Chandler. Wait, that's me or that's the character? Both. The character is is a T. Chandler, just like you. Yeah. <laughs> what? Really? Yeah. Yeah, Thomas Chandler. Thomas. So it's a T.H. Chandler. Even T.H. Yeah. Chandler. Oh, my God. I finally feel like I can relate to a character. Let's see what happens to Little Chandler. To, oh, little no. Chandler. Well, okay. Well, people call, <laughs> wait, people call him Little Chandler. It says it's not because he's actually small. Like, he's actually kind of average but height. But he gives the impression of being small. The way that he carries himself. Yeah, he doesn't take up a lot of space. Oh, it's like a penis thing. He's very clean, very neat, very modest. He has shy, small teeth. Like, <laughs> For some reason. It says they call him like childish teeth. Like sometimes he'll smile and his little childish white teeth come out. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got little small fingernails and like very fine hair and a thin little mustache. He's like the opposite of like Corley and Lanahan, like these big brash guys that just go around like drinking and like, mm. make you know, getting women and stuff. Yeah, he doesn't drink hardly any alcohol. Yeah, that's you. So it opens and he's meeting up with a friend who he hasn't seen in eight years called um, Gallagher. Ignatius Gallagher. <laughs> Whoa. And um, so Gallagher had is from Dublin, but went away to London and became like eh, not like a, a super famous famous writer or anything, but kind of like a big shot journalist. Like he writes for papers and they're kind of like, I guess, gossipy papers. But he gets to travel all around to like different cities and go to Paris and go to Berlin. And little Chandler has been left behind in provincial Dublin. So they meet also up. Gallagher had less education and is like slightly lower class than Little Chandler. And Little Chandler thinks to himself that he'd really like to become a poet. So he's walking on his way to this pub to meet Gallagher. And he's like, yeah, Gallagher like didn't even like get the education that I got. And yet he's out here doing all this cool stuff. Meanwhile, I'm still back here. And I I loved all of this um, talk of being a poet because I was like, oh, this is how we feel. (laughs) It was so unfair. It was, let me see. Um, It basically talks about how, like, he's like, I've got feelings. And sometimes, like, overall, my, my mood is melancholy, but sometimes I have these little flares of joy or, like, little moments where I feel like I, I just get this sense of the world. And if I could put all those things together, I could be a really good poet. And I could be maybe known as, like, someone from the Celtic school, and I could be, like, an Irish poet. And he thinks, like, I wish my last name was a little more Irish— Chandler. He's like, well, maybe I can use my mom's name, which is like Maloney. I can put mm. that in the middle and then um, I'll, I'll be like, so he's got all these like grand dreams. He doesn't even write a poem. Like he just thinks about poetry and he's like, I wonder if maybe I could write one. And then he takes this fantasy all the way to like, I could be a well-regarded Irish poet. <laughs> so, People fall into that trap all the time. <laughs> so he's like, I want to become a poet. Okay. I'm going to write a book of poetry instead of like thinking about poems to write or even like starting to write a poem he's just like he thinks of how he's going to be received yeah i'm going to become t malone chandler and he's on his way to his friend (laughs) in his head he's writing reviews that he wants people to write about his poetry 
I love this character. Yeah. <laughs> so here's a quote. He says, Mr. Chandler has the gift of easy and graceful verse. A wistful sadness pervades these poems. Yeah. The Celtic note. Aww. Like those are things he wants people to say about him. <laughs> I love it. I identified with this a lot. It says, could he write something original? He was not sure what idea he wished to express, but the thought that a poetic moment had touched him took life within him like an infant hope. So he like had this moment where he was like, I had a feeling and he like can't put it into words, which is the whole point of poetry. Mm. And he's like, well, but I had that feeling though. So that's a start. <laughs> and then he writes reviews about himself. <laughs> it was like a very poetic. Poetic feeling. <laughs> it was a poetic feeling. I, I can't say what it was, but it was it was touching. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Wow. I was like, wow, I feel called out. No, you should feel seen. Yeah. I feel seen in a bad way. <laughs> <laughs> Exposed, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so he's thinking all these things, and he goes into the pub, and he sees his friend, and his friend's like, hey there, Tommy boy, how you doing? Like, have some whiskey. And a lot of people will, like, put water in their whiskey to dilute it a little bit. So he's like, okay, you tell me when. And little Chandler has too much water put into his whiskey for Galahan's taste, and he's like, come on, you're being a wimp. Like, just take it straight like I do. Take it neat. Yeah. Gallagher. Did I say Gallagher? You said Gallahan. Gallagher. Yeah, he's like, come on, like, be a man. Take your whiskey neat. And he's like, no, 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 I'm just going to sip on this one. But so they're talking. Yeah, I, I barely drink. Yeah, I barely drink. Chandler is, little Chandler is kind of looking down on Gallagher a little bit, but also clearly very jealous of him. Mm -hmm. He's just like, ugh, like, I take pride in myself. Like, I don't drink a ton like this guy does. I have a wife. And he's like, well, you've been to Paris, right? Like, is Paris a very immoral place? And, he, and Gallagher is like, every place is immoral. Like, you've got sides of life that are going to be seen in all kinds of different cities that are not so great. But yeah, there's nothing like a Parisienne. Like the women are so charming and stylish, stylish. And there's, you know, he's describing women all over the place. And there's, again, weird Orientalism where he's like, ah, yes, like the Jewesses of Berlin, like they've got so much money. I'm not going to settle down and marry anytime now. But, you know, if I did, I would certainly marry one of those women. Like it's weird. They get in like a weird argument or like one upsmanship, which I'm sure people are probably all kind of familiar with, which is like Little Chandler trying to get his own back basically is like, you know, someday you're going to want to settle down. Everybody does. You'll want to get a wife. And the guy's like, nah. And he's mm -hmm. like, well, it's just because you haven't found the right one, which is kind of like, look, I found the right one. And then the guy's like, ha ha ha. Yeah. But really, there's this undertone of like, yeah, I'm jealous. And like, yeah, you're going to have your own kids one day and then you'll see what hell is. <laughs> At one point, Gallagher <laughs> says... There are hundreds. No, what am I talking about? There are thousands of wealthy German women and Jewish women who he could marry at the drop of a hat who would just like love to marry him. So it's just weird bragging and like it's just. Yeah, it's unsavory. <laughs> yeah, it's unsavory. But the whole time he's like kind of pushing him to drink more and more. And finally, like little Chandler's had three whiskeys, which is two and a half more than he usually ever has. <laughs> yeah. And then now he is starting to kind of like get caught up in the moment a little bit. And he's like, hey, why don't you come home and like meet my wife and kid? And Gallagher is like, well, hold on. First, what happens is he's like, all right, well, I got to be going. Like, you know, we're true friends, right, Chandler? Like, we're we're great friends. Like, I really value this friendship. And Chandler's like, oh, well, why don't you come home and meet my family then? Let's get dinner. And he's like, uh, I have to be leaving tomorrow. Yeah, we can we can go home and meet them. And he's like, no, 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 I, I have to be leaving. And he's like, well, then let's have one more drink. And Gallagher's like, checks his watch kind of. And he's like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I all right, one more, I guess. And you get the sense that like, 
Whereas he had been like running the show before, now this guy's kind of wanting to get rid of him. And he says he realizes that Gallagher has been just like patronizing him basically by hanging out with him. Like they're, he doesn't really care for him that much. Uh. He says that Gallagher has been patronizing Ireland with this quiz, quick visit home and is also patronizing him and that he really would rather be somewhere else. Yeah, because when he finds out that he doesn't want to come home and meet his family, he's like, oh, yeah. They part ways, and Chandler goes home. He's definitely, like, drunker than normal now, and he's oh, thinking, like, also, yeah. also, Galher promises, like, yeah, yeah, uh, if I come back to Ireland, I'll have dinner with you next time. And Ch- little Chandler's like, it's a promise, yeah. Like, you have to promise. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I promise, okay. He's walking home, and he, and he gets in, and he sees his wife, and his wife is, like, all annoyed at him because he was supposed to pick up some coffee or something from the shop, and he forgot because he got drunk. And so she's like, fine, I'll just go do it myself. So she, like, shoves the baby into his arms and is like, watch him. And he's, like, reading from a book of poetry while, like, holding this baby. And he's looking around and he's just thinking about how, like, his wife is cold. He's looking at a portrait of his wife and he's like, why did I marry her? Like, yes, she's pretty, but she's prim and she's cold and she's mean, just like all the furniture in this house. Like, she picked it out and it's just as, like, pretty and cold and soulless as the rest of her. And He zeroes in on her blue eyes in a photo her light-colored eyes, and he's like, those eyes are so cold. Why didn't I marry an exotic Jewess with, like, dark, sparkling, emotional eyes? Yeah, why didn't I marry those dark, sultry eyes? It's like, where did you see (laughs) those eyes, little Chandler? You've never left Dublin. Little Chandler. (laughs) Oh, yeah, when his friend is like, have you ever gone anywhere? He's like, I've traveled. I've been to the Isle of Man. The Isle of Man. Which is, like, right over there. (laughs) And Gallagher laughs at him. Yeah, so he starts feeling self-conscious and, like, questioning everything in his life. And he's like, could I still escape? Like, could I maybe just, like, somehow get out of this and, like, run away to London and be a poet? Like, maybe if I wrote a book, I could support myself. He's imagining, like, leaving behind his infant and his wife, Mm -hmm. who, to our knowledge, we don't know if she's, like, really that bad. Like, she seems like she's fine, and he's just being a dick because she's mad at him that he came home late and left her with the baby. Came home drunk, didn't do his one chore. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, so of course she's pissed. So she's out at the shop, and he's rocking the baby, and the baby starts to cry. And all of the thoughts from little Chandler are coming, and you realize that he's referring to the baby as it. And it's like, it won't stop crying. He tried to comfort it. It wouldn't stop. Whoa. So finally, he, like, lost his patience and, and yelled, stop. Right in the baby's face. <laughs> he said, stop it. And so the baby did stop for a second and then looked shocked and then started crying even harder. And little Chandler said he the baby was crying so hard that he was, like, worried it would stop breathing. And he was like, God, what if this thing dies? Like, my wife is going to be so mad at me. Whoa. And then the wife comes in. And she's like, what have you done? And he's like, I didn't do anything. The baby's just crying. But, like, he did do something. (laughs) (laughs) Like, she had no reason to ask him that, but he did do something. Yeah, I mean, he was crying before, but he definitely really upset the kid. And so she takes him away and is, like, comforting the baby. I got this little sense. You know how sometimes men will, like, get really jealous of their babies? Yeah. Because their wives are paying more attention. That's kind of what I thought. Like, she's like, oh, my poor little man, my poor baby. And he's, like, by himself just feeling. And then it says tears of remorse begin to well in his eyes. What about me? And I was like, is it remorse for what he did to the baby? Is it remorse for having married this woman and been stuck here? Who knows? Yeah. He's just feeling bad, and that's how the story ends. So that's the story. I, The thing is, the whole time I was reading that, I was thinking like— Dude, I bet that Gallagher is jealous of you, too. You have a family. You have a house. He's just this, like, I don't know, louche. He's just this guy who's, like, 
going around, doesn't have any real friends, it seems like, doesn't have a home. I don't know. I think Lanahan would be jealous of him, the guy from the Gallant story. But I don't know if Gallagher is. If Gallagher wasn't kind of jealous, there would be no need for him to be, like, bragging, reacting the way that he is. Well, it's just everybody wants the other thing that they don't have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or, like, maybe Gallagher feels judged, maybe, for not having what little Chandler has, so that's why he's reacting that way. But either way, I'm just thinking, like... he should feel judged because he is being judged. I mean, but he's not being judged in a bad way. Little Chandler's jealous of him the whole time. He's jealous of him, but you can you can kind of tell that like he's also looking down on him. But it's all wrapped up. He's complicated. It just seems like both of them are feeling that way about the other one. Yeah. And I don't think either of them has like a wonderful life. But yeah, he... Um, what do you mean, Rachel? There's thousands of Jewesses waiting to marry <laughs> him. That sounds great. <laughs> but yeah, so anyway, Little Chandler, he also mentions at one point, like, he apparently loves poetry and it's like, he says a bunch of times he'd thought of picking up a book of poetry and like going to share a poem with his wife, but he's never done it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, dude, that's on you. Because he like, gets embarrassed. Like he, he starts to want to read it to her. And then he's like, I don't know, I can't I can't share this with her. So he keeps it in like he's withholding from her as much as he perceives she's withholding from him. Right. This is the thing you care about. This is your dream. And you haven't even told the woman that you have a child with. So anyway, that's the deal with that. It also says like whenever Gallagher asks like, oh, I heard you got married or like, do you have any kids? Every time he asks a question like that, like Chandler like blushes a ton as though it's like embarrassing to admit that he's had a child or like. Yeah. Well, that means he's had sex. He's Catholic, Jackie. (laughs) Right. But it's like, you're married. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So here's Gallagher, like, bragging about all the sex he's had. And then this, the protagonist, like, doesn't even, like, want to admit it. Yeah. Right. That he's had sex with his wife once. There's a lot of shame. Maybe he's bad at sex. No, maybe he's not. Who knows? She doesn't seem too into it. Well, we don't know. (laughs) She liked him enough to do it at least once. We'll see. Maybe. No, I shouldn't say that. I was going to say, maybe his penis looks like a silly straw. And so he's worried that if he starts talking about sex, it'll eventually get to that point, And then he has to admit that. <laughs> yeah, that would be embarrassing, I guess. A silly straw. Uh-huh. Like a duck's corkscrew penis. And it spells out like Ireland. Yeah, I guess I don't know enough about locker room talk. But like, in what way would the conversation ever get to that point? Um, I don't know. Like a guy would say... Uh, My penis looks normal. How about yours? Something like that. Yeah, and usually <laughs> when the other person's like, yeah, it's like high five. Normal. Yeah, normal. It's good to be normal. Yeah, no, that's weird. Um, I, I'm loving this Dubliners thing. I love the characters. I love the sadness. It's all great. I love, love how that. many Chandlers there are compared to the other books we've read. Yeah, it feels very musical, too. It does. You actually like it? I feel much like every character we've seen, I have conflicting emotions. <laughs> I feel like I feel like these characters a lot, all of them. I'm just like, uh, you have fleeting moments of happiness, and then you're like disillusioned a lot. And I it's just find sad. <laughs> it honestly kind of makes me feel sick, not like disgusted but just i have like a pit in my stomach the whole time i'm reading it and talking about it that's how i felt on the plane mm. and i didn't know if i felt sick because it was the plane yeah. but i did feel sick while reading it. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I, I had to stop reading it and read something else because i was like it's just making me feel like unsettled cold yeah so i was talking to a friend slash younger sister's friend jesse ann who's like a creative writing major right now at unc And I asked her, I said, do you have any thoughts on Dubliners? Because we're going to talk about it tomorrow. And she's like, oh, I was just talking to a writing professor recently and I was kind of embarrassed, but I've never read it. And I'm like, well, I'll let you know what I think, like if you should read it. And I'm kind of like, 
if you are if you write short stories, you really have to read James Joyce, in my opinion, I guess at this point. You really do have to because the way that he wrote was like very innovative and original and it still feels fresh, the style of writing. And like some of the sentences are so well constructed, they're not enjoyable. Like I, I think I've enjoyed myself maybe twice. <laughs> in the first eight stories. It's hard to describe, but I think I agree. Like, I think if you're trying to learn about the art of constructing a short story, this is required reading because he manages to do it in a way that you don't feel as though you're being fed the information. But when you go back and look at it a little bit and you start to like maybe read a little analysis, because again, you, you will get more out of it if you know what some of the symbols mean. But at the same time, you get the feeling of melancholy and you get the feeling that the characters are expressing about just the feeling of life in general without knowing those symbols. But still, it adds to it. And the way that the characters in the story kind of like overlap with each other, like the Orientalism and the repetition and the indecision and the paralysis, like it's weird to me that he wrote these stories separately and not imagining them together. But I guess he's just got his own special neurosis he's putting into everything. Right. I do think like... The the collection, it is kind of like a tone poem, almost. Like, if you were looking at a portrait and you were like, write a whole book that just gives this one feeling of this, like, gloomy, like, or not a portrait, but like a landscape, like a kind of gloomy landscape, basically, all of these stories kind of have the same feel to them even though you can tell that they're so different Mm -hmm. it's so uncomfortable and i'm kind of i keep waffling back and forth between being like i love this or i respect it but i hate it (laughs) part of the reason it's uncomfortable is because it's not just an endless list of gloomy bad things Mm -hmm. there are times when things could go well for people like the story with the encounter like they're having a great day they're skipping school it's a beautiful june morning They're out on the town. They're, you know, doing what they want to do. They're adventuring. But it gets darkened by this figure who appears. And, like, there's all these times where, like, Araby, like, he's going to go to the bazaar or Evelyn is going to go to Buenos Aires and stuff gets messed up. And it's just, like, you feel hope for a little bit and then you don't. And what I found particularly interesting about, like, the time we're living in compared to, like, these stories, right? You might think there's nothing in common with, like, what's going on with me right now versus, like, Ireland in the 1800s. But little Chandler says to himself, like, He's walking through Dublin to meet his friend Gallagher and he's looking at all of the like shabby little houses and stuff. And he's like, it's this is why he left. Like, I realized you have to leave Dublin to make something of yourself. And like I said, a lot of people feel that way now about like their small towns. And I'm from a town where just like in Dublin at this time, like if you don't leave, a lot of the time you're going to fall into vice of some sort or addiction. And in Dublin, it was alcohol in, you know, most little small towns now it's heroin. And it's like, you kind of, I felt like that was a big parallel to like the modern world, which was kind of surprising, you know, like you get trapped where you're at and and you just get stuck there. I mean, unfortunately in the U.S., social mobility is so low right now compared to even where it's Mm -hmm. been in the past. Like it is at a, a serious low point. And you see that in the rise of, you know, hustle culture where everybody's like, Mm -hmm. oh, I've got this extra thing on the back burner or like, 
I'm an entrepreneur in this way, but just like not everybody wants to do that, but it seems like everyone feels like if I want to be even comfortable, not just rich, Mm -hmm. you have to have like so many irons in the fire, like all these little plans and schemes. And so many of the characters have that too. They either like resigned to being poor forever or it's like I have this one thing that I'm clutching at to try to make my life better and it's such a long shot. And with hustle culture it's like nobody truly wants to be doing it but like we tell ourselves these yeah these fantasies of like boss babe and like you know doing the damn thing and like getting paid and you just all of these little phrases and snippets of pop culture that go into rise it and grind rise and grind yeah like making yourself feel like you are energized and um, uplifted by this. We have to tell ourselves those lies or else it just gets too dark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's hard to read. It really is, but I, I respect it. Unfortunately, it's relatable. <laughs> Unfortunately, it is, yeah. And, I mean, one good thing is, like, in almost none of the stories do I feel like the character is inevitably trapped in something bad. Like, they're just trapped in mundaneness. Well, but also you can see, like, they don't have to be trapped. Like, it's possible for Eveline to write Frank a letter and just say, I am so sorry. I froze. I was too scared to go with you, but I want to join you. I'll be on the next boat to Buenos Aires. Like, Mm -hmm. she could do that. She doesn't have to be where she is. Yeah, but because none of the characters do, at least so far in the point that we've reached. Yeah, we don't see it. We don't see it, and we don't know if it would have gone badly. Like, it's entirely possible, like, Frank would have become a drunkard and drowned her or something, you know? Yeah. I don't think that would happen, but that's the point. Like, you're fearing the unknown, and if you don't opt for the unknown, you're never going to find out. So it's like... A lot of people feel stuck like this, and I feel like that's also very relatable. But the other thing, like Rachel said, is, you know, at the end of the day, you're reading these, and even though it's relatable and that's hard to think about, it's also kind of comforting because people have been feeling like this for ages and ages and ages, and it's not just specific to us. And we know of times when people have been able to, like, get out of their situations and make something of themselves and not regret it. So there are ways out. Yeah. It's also interesting because... You just got to think about what it means for Most you. of these stories, what happens would not be the defining event in the person's life, you know? So it's just so interesting to see, like, mm-hmm. Joyce thought that this was so significant and, you know, mm-hmm. he just imbues it with meaning for the characters. Some of them, it is what happens is a big deal. But for some of them, it's not. Like for Eveline, for <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, like, that is a big deal. Or for the girl who's going to probably marry Mr. Doran for Polly, like, that is a big deal. But yeah. a lot of it, it's like, this is just a thing that happened and the character honestly will probably forget about it in a year or so. I agree, but I think they may not realize how much it might affect them like for example the encounter or the sisters Mm -hmm. where we've got these like kind of two older like possibly creepy like something's going on with them or at least like not accepted by society they may not realize or have the words for like why that's affecting them but it's kind of like their first introduction to like the world having some darkness in it Mm. i don't know so i think even if the characters don't realize it's a pivotal moment for them it's something that should stick with them. Yeah. Yeah, this is a very uh, interesting book. 
I will save my Ireland stories to tell next time. Cool. I have one very funny one, in my opinion. We're going to need it. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this special St. Patrick's Day release. (laughs) We hope you didn't have too much mischief perpetrated on you today. You better have worn some green. Hope you didn't get pinched. (laughs) I don't think this is actually coming out on St. Patrick's Day. I have no idea. (laughs) Well, then we definitely hope you didn't get pinched today. Yeah, I hope you never get pinched, honestly. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us. And, you know, if you like what you hear, check out our social media. We're on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter, at FireTheCannonPod. You can email us at FireTheCannonPod or podcast at gmail.com. Got a Facebook group. And if you really want to show some appreciation, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash fire the cannon we accept gold coins silver coins anything a dragon would like we like am Mm. i saying we're dragons (laughs) come back next week to find out but either way we've got some bonus content for you to check out so check it out consider becoming a patron either way we're just really appreciative that you listened to us this week all right see you next week bye everyone